Today's episode of Great Minds is brought to you by TiVo. TiVo knows things are far from normal. The last few months, TiVo's helped me rediscover and reconnect with shows I had long forgotten about. Thanks to TiVo, I've watched Mad Men. Boy, what a great series that is, and I never would have found it without TiVo. So if you're thinking about where and how you can promote your shows and movies to millions of highly engaged U.S. households, think TiVo. There's no better way to reach your audience and find out what they're searching for than TiVo. Their suite of offerings drives viewers directly to your programming. From in-guide ad banner placements to content-rich native offerings, find out how to make the most of your programming promotions by emailing TiVo at getconnectedattivo.com. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, uh, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this instance of wanting to run towards it. So uh, welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is an incredible entrepreneur. He's got a great career in music as a public speaker, a best-selling author, a professor. Matthew, I don't know how this all fits on one business card. And he's also a dad and a granddad. Uh, Our guest today is Matthew Knoll. So Matthew, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, Matthew. So Matthew, I want to talk a little bit about um, culture. And I went to school in the South. I know you were raised in Gadsden and went to university uh, in the South at Fisk in Nashville too. Talk about how being a child of the South, how that really shaped you, because we are different in the different parts of this country. You know, I grew up in Gaston, Alabama. I was born in 1952, so uh, I'm 68 years old. Uh, Oddly, I never went to a black school until my junior year of college. So that means I desegregated, you know, elementary junior high, high school. I actually went to, out of high school, the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Uh, And then my junior year went to the first black school ever in my life at Fisk University in Nashville. So I've, unfortunately, man, I've been beaten. I've been spit on. I've been electric prided. uh, I've been called every name you can imagine. uh, And that helped shape me mold me. Um, I remember certain situations. And uh, first day at, at my junior high school, I went to my English class. I made a mistake reading a paragraph, and all the little white kids started laughing, throwing spitballs. And and, and I never forget that moment. Uh, but I, I made a commitment. I would become a better reader. And I did. Uh, so, you know, those times were hard. Those times were difficult. My mother went to high school at Coretta King in Marion, Alabama, and so she was a strong woman. Um, my parents were poor. 
I didn't know I was poor until I became an adult. So that right. was my childhood growing up. Right. And going uh, from Fisk and then you got, I guess, a Bachelor of Science, did you have a feel at that point, you know, for what you wanted to do? Um, and, uh, you know, I went to Emory. All my friends became doctors and lawyers, every single one. And I remember sitting with my advisor saying, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm not very good in science, so I guess that means I'll go to law school. And he said, well, do you want to be a lawyer? And I said, not really. And it was as simple as that, that that was the end of my you know, career. And, and like you, I think, after university, I just went out and got myself a job. Did you know back then sort of what you wanted to do? I knew, Matt, when I was a kid growing up, I always wanted to be a businessman. I didn't know quite what that meant. Uh, but, you know, my dad uh, was a produce driver. He convinced the, the folks he worked for to let him use a truck, and he would go and tear down old houses and sell the copper and metals. He would go buy old cars and sell all the parts. My mom was a colored maid. She made $3 a day, but she convinced the woman she worked for to give her all her hand-me-down clothes, and on the weekend, they would make quilts. So my parents were entrepreneurs and, and business people also, so they instilled that in me. So I knew always that I wanted to be a businessman. I knew I wanted to be in sales and marketing, and one day I committed to give corporate America 20 years, and then I would move on. And it was almost, you know, months to 20 years. But my professional corporate career followed my childhood being in the medical division of Xerox and being one of the only blacks to sell zero radiography for breast cancer, being one, if not the first black person to be an MRI uh, sales and specialist for CT and MRI, uh, to be a neurosurgical specialist for Codman, a division of Johnson & Johnson. So I, I kind of follow that trail of uh, being the first even in corporate America. Fantastic. And when you were in college or even before in high school, did you work? Did you have any jobs or internships? I had jobs all my life. I, in elementary school, I went to a Catholic elementary school. I had my first company for about a month selling candy uh, until the nuns found out and I got in trouble. I worked every summer after junior high uh, every summer, a good year, tire and rubber for two summers, lifeguard um, in Chattanooga, at University of Tennessee, I worked in the summers. That was always instilled in me, work ethics. All right, so you have 20 years, give or take, working in uh, the medical area, working for Xerox, uh, and then somewhere around 1992, a little company called Music World Entertainment is born. Tell us about that. So, you know, Beyonce had, uh, she was a young girl. She was, I don't know, 12 years old, 11, 12 years old. And um, they had uh, performed and competed on Star Search. And for those of you that are uh, too young, that's like American Idol today. Thank you, Skeleton Crew. Your challenges are a young group from Houston. Welcome, Beyonce, Lativia. Nina, Nikki, Kelly, and Ashley, the hip-hop rapping girls' time. 
I was just a dad. I went there primarily because they had all of these this wardrobe. They thought they were going to win for months and had an extra hotel room just for the wardrobe. And I helped out the managers and helped carry the wardrobe. Thank you. Girls time. Two platinum performances from Champ and Challenger. The judges give champion skeleton crew four stars. A perfect score. The Challenger girls time receives three stars. Skeleton crew. But when the kids lost, uh, I went to Ed McMahon and I said, hey, I'm a dad seeing my kid crying. You know, it's breaking my heart. What do I do? And he said, Mr. Knows, for some reason, everybody, most people that lose on Star Search. And he started naming Justin Timberlake and Boys to Men and Usher. And he just went on and on with all these names. He said, but for some reason, those people that lose go back and they refocus uh, they recommit, they make changes in the organization, and then they move forward. And that's when I decided to, at the, about that same time, a thing called managed care was happening in a medical field uh, where we're selling cost rather than quality. And I was a seasoned salesperson, and, and that didn't work for me. So it was, it was the right time. It was that defining moment for my career as well. So I went back to college, uh, I believe, in getting knowledge, uh, took courses, went to every seminar that I could in America. I was that person that would ask all the questions that people would get annoyed because I'm like, nobody else want to ask questions, I'll ask questions. Uh, and, and that's how I got into the industry with a, a different concept that I wasn't in the music industry. I was in the entertainment and branding industry, which was a different approach. Fantastic. And what was Music World's first big project or, or one that you just remember fondly? Well, our first big project, believe it or not, was in Destiny's Child. It was actually uh, getting a major record deal uh, for a rapper here in Houston. Uh, and and that was on the same label with Puffy and Mary J. Blige. It was it was a big deal at that time. And then the second big deal was obviously getting Destiny's Child, uh, their their deal. And were they were the girls all friends? Did you put them together? How did, how did that all happen? Well, they it got interesting. You know, it started out as girls' time and. Then girls' time became the dolls. The dolls became something fresh. Something fresh became cliche. Cliche became destiny. Destiny became became destiny's child. Dad, right? Matthew Knowles, how you doing? Well, it's one thing to have somebody in the drill team, but when you've got a, a possible major giant group on your hands, how do you feel as a parent? Well, I'm very proud, not only of my daughter, but all of the girls. They work extremely hard. It's a commitment to do this, and they're committed. But are you dreaming a little bit? Well, actually, actually, Don, the girls have performed seven times in a combination of Dallas and Houston, and each and every time that they perform, there's a standing ovation from, from the audience. So the audience has judged them, and they've judged them well. It's, it's feel-good music, and you've got to get a shot of it. It would take a whole book, which I just recently wrote, that can tell you that story called Destiny's Child, the Untold Story. But... Uh, it, it was it, it was years and years and years of different members. Um, I had a manager, a co-manager that died of lupus on the way uh, to, to the success. 
lot of different people. The girls uh, got dropped, uh, which is our terminology, as you know, in the music industry. It means the same as got fired. <laughs> they got fired by the record label, Electra Records, which was a major record label. Uh, and, and I've learned that if you see highly successful people, uh, they've had a fair amount of failure, and it was opportunity to grow for them rather than a reason to quit. Yeah, no, that's how we learn, right? Absolutely. We don't learn from being successful. We learn we make mistakes. Exactly, exactly. We just had uh, had a wonderful conversation with Darlene Love uh, for the Great Minds podcast, and her first girl group was the Blossoms in the early 60s. And they were big backup singers and were on Shindig. I'm sure you remember Shindig. Oh, I remember that, yeah. The Blossoms. And she said back then, the record labels in the music industry literally did not know what to do with an all-black group. You know, there were old groups like the Maguire Sisters and stuff that, you know, you listen to now and it, it sounds right. old. It sounds old. And it sounded old then. And uh, by the time Destiny's Child came along, you had a pretty good history of all-girl groups, black and white. Well, you know, back in the, the, the 80s and 90s, the 70s, 80s and 90s, um, you know, record labels were pretty segregated. You know, you had your black division, um, then you had your popular pop division, uh, and they, they, they didn't work together often. And a lot of the black artists didn't cross over. Uh, to the pop side, so it was it was pretty segregated, and then somewhat you still have that pop and R and B, and um, but we're seeing music change, Matt. We're seeing music uh, not have any boundaries, uh, and I love that. Yeah. So who, when you label after you got dropped, who picked you up, and and who was your real, you know, sort of you know, cheerleader who saw what you saw in Destiny's Child? Well, again, we're talking, we're talking, you know, this journey started about 1993. Um, and then the girls got signed with Babyface and L.A. Reid's partner, Daryl Simmons, in a production deal who then got them signed to Electro Records, which was a major, major record label in the 90s. Uh, that didn't work, and then the girls got dropped, and then I and my partner, and Andretta Tillman at the time, uh, we took the torch in just artist development. I was just, I was just really into artist development, uh, and that lasted for two years, and the girls kept performing and performing and getting better and getting better, and uh, happened a small event, and you know, as it's odd. I'm looking at the George R. Brown Convention Center out of my bedroom right now, and that's where the girls got signed by Columbia Records. It's so wow. eerie feeling right now, Matt. Right. Yeah, time has stood still, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. But uh, they, they got signed uh, finally. It took years. It took years. And, uh, you know, then they had changes in the, in, the in the group and more changes and it got better and better and better. 
And we had a strategy. We had a, a strategy. We had a worldwide international strategy, not just a U.S. strategy. Well, I, I think you had a pretty good plan. It seemed to have worked out fairly well. Well, thank you. You know, I came from corporate America, uh, from these major corporations, Phillips Medical Systems, which was based in Eindhoven. Um, you know, so I, I had traveled a lot uh, and I had uh, in business. And so I, I saw the world and I saw the, the, the world of business and how it was done differently. The approach uh, in Japan is a different marketing and sales approach than the UK, which is different than the U.S., so it's really about understanding, because this sells is really simple. He who has the largest audience sells the most. We make it complicated, but it's actually that simple. Matthew, I was really looking a, a whole bunch at your, you know, your body of work and your career, which is just incredible. And sort of the, the thread of continuity right from the beginning is that notion of achievement. And you're a guy who has always gotten stuff done. And I know that you wrote a great book, uh, The DNA of Achievers. Can you tell us about that book? And with an eye towards, you know, today when so many people are in such difficult circumstance, you know, what yeah. advice What advice would you give folks, whether you have money, don't have money, you know, hopefully have your health, but, you know, what, what could you share with folks that would help them during this challenging time? Well, thank you. You know, that DNA of Achievers is, is, is one of my, my first book. That is the first book I ever wrote. And it talks about the 10 traits. And I was back with, again, talking about 2002. I was traveling a lot and on airplanes. And, you know, you'd sit next to someone, you start to talk. And, and, and I began to see this common thread in, in successful people. Uh, when you ask them, what do you do? Uh, they would get excited and energized, and they begin to tell you, and you always see, hear them say the word passion. This is my passion. Uh, and, and so the first and most important trait I feel in being successful is identifying what is your passion. You know, Matt, we often do things that our parents wanted us to do or our spouses or our friends. But what is that thing we wake up in the morning? What is that thing we dream about? It might not even be popular. But what is it? What is that thing that energizes someone? Because that's the trail that you should be following is learning what your passion is. Because I've learned when you live your passion, you never work a day in your life. You know, I'm fortunate. I'm not working right now. I'm having a wonderful conversation, uh, enjoying it. Uh, and that's what passion is and what coexists with passion always is work ethics. And you were, I guess it was instilled from from your parents way back when, uh, but you've always had that work ethic. How do you instill that in folks who may not have it? Because the folks that don't have it aren't living their passion. They're doing a job. They're, not, they're going to work. They're not. They're not living their passion, because everyone that I know lives that live their passion. Uh, they put in hours. They enjoy it. It's almost you have to shut them down. They're so excited about it. Uh, 
uh, and I found that consistently. You find someone that's not doing a good job on, on the, uh, where they work or wake up in the morning and don't want to go. It's because they're not doing what they're passionate about. And, and what people get confused, Matt, is that it's not about money. Because when you live your passion, I guarantee you will eventually make lots of money. But it's a process. There's a knowledge, of a learning curve that has to happen. But because you're passionate, you'll put in the time and energy to learn. It all goes together. So looking back early in life, your mom, uh, Lou Helen Knowles, and your father, Matthew, with two Ts, uh, clearly they were very influential in you, the man you would become. Who were some of the other great minds looking back to your early days in Alabama, to your time in Tennessee, or to your early experience in corporate America? Who were some of the great minds and passionate people that really helped influence you? Oh, really good question. I, uh, I, I uh, there was a, he was my godfather. He was a minister, uh, Reverend B. L. Walker. Um, really affluent, really smart man, uh, that always just sat and talked to me the importance of education. Um, he taught me also the importance of perception. He was a minister that if he went down the street to the grocery store, he put a suit and tie on. Uh, and he he taught me that importance. So I would say certainly uh, Reverend Walker. I also played uh, junior high, high school, college basketball, uh, and team sports really taught me a lot. Also, uh, that it's not about I, it's about we. Uh, so I had some really good coaches in high school um, and also in college that that I really taught me a lot about leadership and, and teamwork. Uh, and so I would, I would acknowledge them as well. And then when I was at Xerox, you know, we think of uh, copiers, but again, I was in a medical division, which was a, a elite division that was just for the diagnostic imaging equipment for breast cancer, uh, which is an irony I'm sure we'll get to. But, you know, I... Um, here in Houston, there was a branch manager, and I was a young rookie kid out of college, and I said, his name was Worf Davis, and I used to come in at 7 in the morning, and I'd see the Wall Street Journal at the door, and I'd pick it up and read it, and then Worf came in my cubbyhole one day and said, hey, you're the person that's got my Wall Street, and he says, come in my office. I thought I might get fired, and he says, ask me, well, what do you want to do with you? And, you know, things that I asked and managed by management. And I told him I wanted to be the best sales rep ever in the history of Xerox. And he says, really? And I said, yes, really worth. And I said, will you help me? And so the next thing I know, he had me going to these meetings. I was making, you know, the, getting the copies made at the board meeting, uh, you know, passing out the donuts, you know. And then eventually they would ask me my opinion or something. And, and I say in my book, The DNA of, of Achievers, because I, I thank Worth Davis. Uh, and I said, you know, Worth, I didn't understand as a 21, 22-year-old black man, why the hell was I going to these meetings with these old white men? Well, they were only the president of Shell, Exxon, and Pennzoil. 
fantastic. So, so he put me in a situation of executive leadership to understand how you know major decisions are made from a forty thousand foot view. Uh, and so I, I really uh, owe Worth a lot because he really mentored me uh, in my early part of my career. So let's talk about one of the many elephants in the room in this country, which is race. Uh, and I know you're active not only with the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, but also the Gospel Music Association. And, and one of the uh-huh. things that um, we talk about a bunch on on great minds, we've had a lot of people from the music world, is to heighten understanding that pop and rock and R&B, all of that music came out of the church and gospel singing. I'd love to hear your perspective, having experienced racism, as you talked about earlier when you were in Tennessee. Uh, looking today at the top, it, you've still got, you know, let's, let's take the Motion Picture Academy, where the, all the nominees and somehow not one black director, not one black writer, not one black producer. You know, the Grammys have had a lot of problems around gender and race. Aren't we at a point now, Matthew, by now, that these institutions should be kind of getting it a little bit better than they are? Well, the answer is yes. But but we could say the same thing about America. Aren't we at a point that we should be getting it a little better? I mean, even with this coronavirus, uh, we we see uh, the disparities that are among the different races in America, that who are the people that's dying the most and, and disproportionately uh, is black and brown people, um, Native Americans. Uh, you know, it's amazing how disproportionate that is. Race has always been an issue in America, and it's folks like you and I that have to talk about it and have these opportunities to let our listeners hear different perspectives about race. So I, I appreciate you bringing up the topic of race. In recent days, there's been a lot of news about the voting process at the Grammys. Has any of that affected the way that you're looking at winning this award today? Uh, I'm half and half on it. Um, on one side, I'm very grateful that uh, what I made could just be you know, uh, acknowledged in a world like this. Um, but also, it sucks that whenever we, and I mean guys that look like me, do anything that's genre bending or that's anything, they always put it in a rap or urban category, which is, and I don't like that urban word, it's just a politically correct way to say the N-word to me. So when I hear that, I'm just like, why can't we just be in pop? Why can't it just, you know what I mean? So I felt like half of me feels like the the rap nomination was a backhanded compliment. Like, oh, uh, my little cousin wants to play the game. Let's give him the unplugged controller so he could shut up and feel good about it. That That's what it felt like a bit. But, but it just requires each and every one of us speaking our voice and, and having the social courage to speak up, speak out, speak against racism, sexism, xenophobia, homophobia. Uh, you know, it's our responsibility to speak up and speak out against that and have that social courage 
not be frightened or ashamed or embarrassed to say what we think is right. So let's talk about some of your uh, recent challenges in the health arena and how you've navigated through those. And I hope you're, you know, 100% today and tomorrow and for a long time, but let's talk about some of that. In Health Watch now, a stunning announcement from Beyonce's father. Matthew Knowles says he's been treated for breast cancer. And while that that may sound surprising, CBSN New York's Dr. Max Gomez tells us that men can and do get breast cancer. Matthew Knowles made his announcement during an interview with Michael Strahan on Good Morning America. What I want to share, Michael, is that I also am a survivor of breast cancer. It started two months ago when Knowles noticed a little blood on his shirt, even though he hadn't been scratched or injured. I wear white t-shirts a lot, and I noticed this drop of blood one day on my t-shirt, and first day I didn't think anything. I thought maybe my wife had got some new t-shirts and it was a thread or something. The second day, I didn't think a whole lot. Then the third day, same area, drop of blood inside my t-shirt. I said to my wife, you know, Jenna, keep seeing this uh, drop of blood. Like, it's crazy. I wonder what it is. She says, that that is really interesting because yesterday when I cleaned the, the sheets, there was two drops of blood on your side of the sheets. I said, well, I need to go to the doctor immediately, uh, ask to get a, a mammogram, and uh, then we got a biopsy uh, all in a week's time, and then I had surgery. Uh, and I had, I, I used the word male chest cancer because I don't think it's appropriate uh, for men to say breast cancer. Um, And and so I had male chest cancer. And, uh, but that was the symptom. It wasn't the cause. I then found uh, in that same process about BRCA genetics. And all of us have walking on this earth have BRCA genes. I have a gene that's called BRCA2 mutation, which means that I have genetically uh, a greater chance, 40 to 50 percent greater chance for prostate cancer, for melanoma, for pancreatic cancer, and for male chest cancer. For women, it's breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Uh, and as we are learning in science and medicine more and more about genetics, uh, and then when I went uh, on Dr. Oz, he challenged me to go back and look at my family history. And unbeknownst to me, I knew my grandfather died of prostate. My dad had six brothers. Four of the six died of prostate oh, cancer. Wow. I never knew that. Uh, and then I looked at my mother's side. My grandmother's sister had breast cancer. My mother's sister died of breast cancer. My aunt's two daughters died of breast cancer. So, you know, genetics and health and wellness is just a, a, a big issue, uh, especially in the black and brown community. We, we lead in all mortalities. Um, we look at, you know, heart disease. We look at uh, cancer. We, we any major major disease. And now it, you can understand the the, the the relationship because as we're hearing about the coronavirus, virus is those people who are predispositioned. Uh, those are the people that are really coming down hard with this. 
which again happens to be the black and brown. So we go in this vicious cycle of education and poverty and health. Uh, it's a vicious cycle in America. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, your thoughts and reflections now. You've lived a couple years as a dad and as a granddad. Beyonce has uh, three and Solange has my oldest grandkid, Jules, who's now 15. 15. And, and talk about what a joy that must be in your life to be a grandfather. It is. It is. You know, um, I've always been with, with, with kids, you know, the, the twins, uh, they're, they're relatively young to, you know, three years old. Um, Blue is, Ivy is eight, and, but Jules is, is uh, um, 15, so, and, a, and a boy. So obviously I'm going to gravitate more to him because, A, he's older, and he's my oldest grandkid, and he's uh, a boy. But equally important, he's a basketballer. Like his granddad, so uh, I, I talk to him a lot. Uh, uh, I talked to him his first day of high school, Matt, and I, I'll tell you the story quickly. He, I called him at six in the morning, and he said, and I said, "What are you wearing to school, Jules, today?" And he says, "I'm wearing my brand new Jordans. Nobody has any, and these things are real expensive." And I said, "Are you crazy?" I said. Your first day of high school, you're going to wear something that gets you all this attention. Already you've got marks against you just because you're tall, you're good-looking. This kid speaks fluent French. And I told him, by the way, do not speak French to the girls. Don't let them know that yet. These guys are really going to be mad at you. And he's a really, really good basketball player. But this kid was going to wear some brand-new Jordans to school his first day of school, high school, which would have been a disaster, I think. So, uh, you know, I look back and memories of my grandfather who used to take me to the city and that's where I learned my great love for Manhattan and great love for travel. And he would take me, you know, to see the circus when we had the Ringling Brothers Circus, now gone. And, you know, we could walk around anywhere we liked. We used to go down to Lower Broadway a lot. I imagine that given who your daughters are and your son-in-law, uh, Jay-Z in particular, you're not just taking walks in Central Park with, with the kids. Is it tougher to be a grandfather and do you have to find different ways to connect with the kids because of who they are? No, not not, not at all. Um, you know, it, it's really, you know, I right before the, um, right before all of this coronavirus hit the fan, uh, I had a wonderful dinner uh, with Beyonce and Jay and had an opportunity to spend time with the grandkids and really spend some quality time. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of spending time. We all tr are traveling, um, and, and that becomes difficult. Uh, and, and they're young. Uh, you know, Blue Ivy is eight years old, going on uh, 25. Uh, but she's she's an extremely talented. She reminds me so much of, of, of Beyonce, um, at eight years old, Beyonce was doing pretty much the same things. Just, she really blew me away when she played this song on a piano and, and had her sheet of paper, and I thought it was her notes, but she had written the song. And I was like, wow. I mean, she really played, not little kid play. I mean, she really could play the piano. 
is Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful job, Baba. You sound so pretty. Oh, you want to do it again? You're like mommy, huh? And I can relate to that because my mother made me play, take piano lessons when I was a kid. I hated it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's all about connection. It's all about watching them grow and knowing the role of grandparents. And, you know, the role of a granddad is a little different than a grandmom. Um, again, we're going to gravitate more to the boys. Uh, and you just play your role and enjoy it. That's right. Wonderful. And Matthew, just to wrap up, I know that you just produced uh, a PSA video to raise awareness about COVID-19. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and and we'll be sure to share the link so people can watch it. Um, But I'd love to hear about that. Well, I just wanted to do something uh, that could impact. I I, I have a responsibility and I have a platform and I'm grateful uh, you know, when I had male chest cancer, uh, I shared that. I didn't hide it. I shared it to the world. And a lot of our young people don't quite understand that it's not as much of themselves that they're putting at risk as they're putting their parents and grandparents and others at risk. Why practice social distancing? Why stay at home? This is not something to take lightly. This is not a figment of your imagination. COVID-19 has arrived and is spreading quickly. I was able to partner with the college professor and a young director uh, out in L.A., and we practiced of course, uh, it was tough shooting it, um, but we did. And that was the whole thing was to give back uh, as my family. Uh, that's just a part of us. Uh, I hear today uh, that Beyonce is giving thousands of masks in Houston. Uh, Solange is always giving in some way and having a perspective. My parents were like that. My father was a volunteer fireman in Gaston, Alabama. Never got paid a dime and would risk his life as a black man. They didn't have black firemen. Uh, That's a family culture, tradition, a piece of us is giving back. Fantastic. Uh, Tell us what else, just to finish up, You've accomplished so much. I mean, you managed and broke, you know, one of the most iconic groups, you know, in, in music history, not just in this country, but any country. What else is on your list, Matthew? What else is out there that you haven't been able to get done that you want to, or when you lay in light, awake at night and, you know, you and Gina were talking, what's still on your list? I just want to get back uh, on that stage of, of motivating and educating uh, I just want to get back to that. You know, it was it's amazing how it was just two and a half, three months ago. Uh, and now it just seems so far uh, long ago. And I just want all of us to get back. And I know there's going to be a period that we're, we're going to have to have some hardships to get back. But we can do this. 
it's a, a period of change and adaptation, and we got to learn to modify our behavior. But we will get back to that. That's what I want to get back to. That's what I enjoy. I enjoy sharing my stories and being vulnerable, and in my vulnerability, I know lies my safety. So that's what I want to get back to. Well, this was such a pleasure. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we didn't? No, not at all, Matt. You know, I I always tell people if they want to, I have five books, if they like to understand more what I do, and just go to MatthewKnowles.com. Matthew, you stay safe and healthy. It was great talking to you. All right. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.
Thank you.